This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new book, Teaching What Really Happened, How to Avoid the Tyranny of Textbooks and Get Students Excited About Doing History, our guest today, James W. Lowen, takes history textbooks to task for their perpetuations of myth and their lack of awareness of today's multicultural student audience, not to mention the astonishing number of facts they just get plain wrong. Lowen is the best-selling author of Lies My Teacher Told Me and Lies Across America, He taught race relations for 20 years at the University of Vermont and has been an expert witness in more than 50 civil rights, voting rights, and employment cases. James Lowen, welcome to Weekly Signals. Hi, I'm glad to be there. Yeah, well, we're glad you're with us. How are you today? Just fine. All right, real good. Now, tell us us about what it is to teach history right off the bat. Is is there something important that history professors need to teach that they're leaving off the agenda right now? Oh, gosh, yes. Um, particularly K-12, right? Okay. Uh, middle school middle school, and high school especially. Well, not that they do a better job in primary school. I'm not saying that. Um, the basic story that they do tell is totally bland and totally positive. Basically, it's this. We started out great, and we've been getting better ever since, <laughs> more or less automatically. Yeah. All right. Now, you people should vote, they'll say that, but that's kind of it, you know. Uh, no notion that, actually, uh, when we have made progress, which we have on occasion, it's because people have struggled, you know, and done stuff. And when we have gone in the opposite direction, it's, again, because people have struggled in the opposite direction and done stuff. And so the notion of doing stuff, and by stuff I mean things like everything from writing to your congressman or writing to your textbook publisher to get a better textbook... <laughs> to, you know, more active, uh, active protests or political movements or whatever. Well, the, the notion of doing stuff kind of scares them, and so they don't imply that stuff needs to be done. And that's what makes the book so incredibly boring, because there's no drama, there's just melodrama, and there's nothing that needs to be done. Now, now do you think this is uh, calculated, or is this just plain laziness in general, that, that people aren't inclined to want to do stuff? And they're not well, I think there's a, it's a mix. Okay. Um, the, the, I have looked into the, the textbooks, and most teachers, not all by any means, but most, over half of teachers in American history and social studies just teach the textbook. And the textbooks are long and boring. They've actually reached 1,152 pages on average, which is longer than they used to be. It's just hard to believe. So... Um, uh, what happens, there's, there's two forms of laziness involved. First of all, the people who allegedly wrote these textbooks didn't. They have rented their names to the publishers, and the publishers get the books written by hacks, by clerks, by people they hire to write them, who don't have the credentials or the um, intellectual knowledge to impart any kind of storyline of interest to what's going on. They just kind of write down, you know, fact after fact, uh, or alleged fact, I should say, after alleged fact. <laughs> and so that's the first problem, author laziness. And then there's a lot of teacher laziness. Uh, 
uh, again, over half of all teachers just teach what's in the book. And they rely, many of them have no background or very little background in American history or anything related to American history. So they rely on the publishers to send them stuff like a CD-ROM with all kinds of test questions. These are multiple-choice test questions. I bet you guys remember I mean, all these endless questions at the end of each chapter, like, you know, when did the War of 1812 start? That's my favorite. <laughs> so the, the problem then is that the textbooks are born, and the teacher doesn't do anything but teach the textbook. Now, you, you, you bring up a couple of it, it, very interesting uh, uh, thoughts here, which uh, one of them has to do is how much are these, uh, the publishers, the writers and publishers of these history books, uh, afraid of political pressure uh, because there are some um, unsavory chapters in American history regarding slavery and uh, working conditions for, for, for the workforce and all kinds of things along the way where you, as the, the struggles you're describing were certainly a part of making all of that better. But how much of it is related to just a fear that somebody somewhere in the Kansas City Board, uh, board of School of Board... Board of Education is going to jump up and say, you know, this is anti-American. Yeah, or this is too controversial. I think there's a lot of caution like that. And I actually, maybe I'm a cockeyed optimist, but I actually think it's a misplaced caution. Uh, Here's what I mean. Uh, For for example, my my, my paragraph on this is, uh, take the the president, uh, Franklin W. Pierce. Matter of fact, I wish you would take him. (laughs) My candidate for the second worst president in the history of the United States. Second worst. so bad. He's the only uh, president who won election uh, and then was not even renominated by his own party, even though he wanted to be. Uh, And when he left office and came back to New Hampshire, nobody even met him at the train. (laughs) Um, I mean, he was terrible. He's one of the reasons we had a civil war. His policies in Kansas and elsewhere helped lead to it. So he's a terrible president. But, you know, during this period that we call the nadir of race relations, which is a little-known period, 1890 to 1940, about which I'd like to say more a little later, but anyway, uh, during this period, we didn't give a damn about race relations, and the fact that he was terrible on slavery and terrible on other things didn't really matter that much. Plus, he's the only president ever to come from New Hampshire. So in about 1950 or 55, uh, New Hampshire actually named a school for him, and, uh, as I say, he's the only president from New Hampshire. So if a textbook, well, anyway, publishers imagine that if they told the truth about somebody like Franklin W. Pierce, if they said what I just said, well, then maybe some school district in New Hampshire might reject their book. So they don't. You know, they say, well, he was nicknamed uh, Little Hickory of the Granite Hills. Okay. Now, I submit to you, nobody has ever had a nickname that long, you know. Most <laughs> nicknames are like Bob. But this guy, you can just imagine, he, you know, his father at the soccer game says, Come on, little history of the Granite Hills, you can do it. I don't think so. No. Well, well, is just myth-making is so much easier than, than actually digging in and finding, yeah, trying and to find Yeah, and then some... nobody will not adopt your book. That's their thinking. Right. Yeah. Now, I actually believe but... that if a publisher... Had a you know hired a creative person and wrote a a fresh textbook that um, was more accurate and that did uh, call things bad when they were bad. 
that they get adopted by all kinds of systems. I mean, how about your school system? Are they so backward that they, they you know, that they wouldn't do it? I hear better things than that about Irvine. You well, know? well, Irvine, we're, but we are talking to you from Orange County, and we still have an element that, that sort of, I, I think of it as what I recall a few years ago, was the Liz Cheney uh, r- trying to write and her organization, I think the Heritage Foundation, were th- throwing money into this project to write the, the, the proper American history. And I, that's what I'm referring to, not only just the backward, ignorant people, and I, I refer to the Kansas Board of Education, but, I mean, there are people that just do not want to know uh, about the, they refuse to believe that Americans ever did anything wrong, this exceptionalism and all the rest of it. And Liz Cheney yeah. put some, some gravitas behind that sort of movement. I'm just curious, in your mind, how much that plays into, you know, this, this, what we're teaching people. It, well, I definitely it, think it's possible. Yeah. Uh, and, and well, in fact, I think that's, that's definitely part of the publisher caution. Yeah. Uh, all I'm saying is, I think the publishers are maybe, uh, yeah. mi- too cautious, misjudging. Uh, with regard to Lynn Cheney, you know, she's one of the forces behind this group called the Teaching American History Program. Yeah. Uh, she and President Bush and Senator Byrd, the 137-year-old senator from West Virginia, <laughs> uh, still in office. And it's a good program. Uh, yeah. it, it throws a lot of money at um, high school and middle school history teachers, but they need some thrown at them. Uh, it, it causes them to get some books, to go on some field trips, to do some real thinking, and they have all these seminars. And one of the reasons I like this program is because these programs keep uh, engaging me to keynote them. Yeah. And I've now keynoted maybe 30 of them. And I am sure that Lynn Cheney, if she never knew this, would be rolling over in her grave, and she's not even dead yet, <laughs> um, to learn that I uh, am keynoting teaching American history programs. But I am, and that shows that many, many school districts um, want a different approach, you know? Yeah. We're speaking with James Lowen. Uh, the, the book is Teaching What Really Happened, How to Avoid the Tyranny of book, Textbooks and Get Students Excited About Doing History. Now, now how does teaching what really happened gets students excited about doing history because history has a bum rap uh, in general people yeah. look at it as like the, the the course that they can take a nap in uh, and what, yeah. you know what is it that that really teaching history can can yeah. uh, wake people up and open their eyes yeah. well let, let me give you an example um, one of the chapters in teaching what really happened deals with uh, secession why did we have a civil war well, of course, we had a civil war because the South seceded. So why did the South secede? Well, it, it turns out that the textbooks have a, a ridiculous and very vague and, and uh, almost, in fact, obscure uh, paragraph on that subject. Uh, this is a controversy these days. It was no controversy in 1860-61. Everybody knew why the South seceded back then. And so there's a, there's a way to get teachers to teach this. And it's very simple. You actually have the class vote on why the South seceded. And I, I suggest this. And I suggest the four alternatives that students, or for that matter, teacher groups, or uh, old adults, anybody come up with. Uh, they come up with these, these, group, uh, these reasons. Slavery, states' rights, tariffs and taxes, or issues about fame, and the election of Lincoln. And if you have students vote, some will vote for each of those four alternatives. And then they're already engaged. What do we do now? Do we go by majority rule? You know, does, does Ernie win? Because Ernie usually is right in history. Well, no, neither of those works. Of course, we have to go get evidence. And then students realize, well, they've got to go find some evidence. What would be good evidence? And they start thinking about this. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and the end result is that they're, that they're not only interested in it, they will probably remember why the South seceded when they're 40 years old, when they're 60 years old. Yeah. And and w- the points you just made are, are relevant, to, certainly relevant today. If you want to talk about not only just as a history lesson, but how, how often, uh, even from yesterday, we're, we're talking about uh, giving, uh, there's a potential health care reform uh, act here that may give states an option to opt out of a essentially a federally sponsored program. Talk about states' rights. And then the other things you talk about, taxes and tariffs and the election of Abraham Lincoln. I mean, the echoes of, of that are Lincoln was trying to bring some equality to all Americans. And here today we have the uh, sort of the manifestation, the living embodiment of all Americans have, have uh, seen uh, that uh, anyone uh, can be elected president regardless of their uh, ethnicity or the color of their skin. So there is relevance in just that one example that you're talking about uh, in terms of the Civil War. and all system. kinds of relevances, yes, to the present. Yeah. Indeed, the, the most exciting relevance, I think of it, and let me return now briefly to the this um, concept of the Nader period, um, the South, in fact, succeeded for slavery. That's the key reason. Right. Now, the, the notion that uh, the election of Abraham Lincoln had something to do with it, that's not wrong. Uh, that was more a trigger, but we have to give credit for that. Mm-hmm. But the notion that the South succeeded for states' rights is total BS, as we say in sociology, that being bad sociology. Uh, there's absolutely no support for that in 1861. Indeed, uh, document after document, such as the South Carolina Secession Ordinance, um, argue that they are upset with states' rights. They are against states' rights. Mm. And I'll just leave that a little bit enigmatic. But then, if you look at what we started to say between 1890 and 1940, that's when we started to say, well, it's about states' rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this whole uh, uh, notion that today so many people get it wrong, including the majority of all teachers, because I know I've been asking them for the last two years, um, that shows the power of this period, the nature of race relations, 1890-1940, even lingering into our own, uh, shall we say, post-Obama era in mm-hmm. the year 2009. Well, the, well the, what's, to me, I, I'm certain, you know, you're right, well, all the things you're saying, obviously you're right about it, you know this more than I do, but... <laughs> but uh, Doesn't but, mean he's right. Well, but, <laughs> but, this is all, but this has been the rationale since, the, uh, since uh, World War II, uh, is that the reason for the uh, the blocking of civil rights in, in uh, since 1948 has been states' rights. So even though what you're saying, right. uh, it, it's it was a it was not true what happened in in, in 1860. It's it has been a political fact. It's an historic fact today that that's the rationale that's being that was constantly being used up until exactly. the late the 60s. South absolutely, the white South has absolutely been in favor of states' rights yeah. from about 1948 yeah. till uh, well maybe till now. Yeah. Yeah, and, even today, and, uh, even today. I mean, even though this it was sounds ridiculous, but the the fact that uh, the governor of Texas would even float the idea yeah. that of secession. Talking about secession, you know. I mean, all these things again. What you're talking about, and what's important about your book, and what's important about this discussion is, I, I've always been of the opinion that people assume that history happened stopped happening five years ago. That what's happening today has no relevance to what would have ha- what happened ten or a hundred years ago. That history somehow is new every all the time. It's it's, it's it has no there's no relationship to what happened in 1965 or 1968 or whatever. It just and it bothers me. And that's one of the things I think you're talking about is how irrelevant sure. history seems to to our present well, day discussion. One of the things that the textbooks do the textbooks 
deliberately, I think, avoid any relevance to the present. That's what I'm saying. Um, you know, if they're talking, they'll talk pretty well about slavery, for instance, because we fixed it, in a way. Yeah. You know, slavery's over. We yeah. don't have it anymore, at least not legally and not much of it anyway. So we can talk about slavery. But slavery, of course, gave rise to racism. Racism is, and white supremacy, is the ideology, the rationalization for the system of slavery. Yeah. Well, racism didn't just vanish in 1863 with the uh, end of slavery, or 1865 when it ended on the ground. Uh, it still persisted. And indeed, it got stronger during this Nader period. Well, the textbooks never talk about the Nader, and they never talk about racism. Literally, their indexes do not have the R word. They do have the S word. So that's part of the way in which they um, kind of inoculate the present from the past. They, they separate the two, insulate, I should have said, and it just makes history boring. It makes it have no relevance. Well, it's even worse than that. I remember when I was in high school, I remember reading about Reconstruction. And as and what the, the, the main concept that they were trying to put across in, in Reconstruction was, well, look, uh, during this period of time, uh, Af- black people were able to be elected, and they were elected as senators and governors, and they were in the Congress and all that. Isn't that great? But then the other part of it is then all these carpetbaggers came down from the from the north and and yeah. took it, and and so look at that. It wasn't you know look at that's a part of it. But I r- don't remember, but just a a little tiny bit of the discussion being about the repercussions and as you say the the rise of of uh, white supremacy and the Ku Klux Klan and all of that that was sort of glossed over all i remember getting out of reconstruction was well black people got to be in the house and senate and look at all those northerners who came down there to run those poor people into the ground and i mean i'm sure that's an element of the story but the other part was well, kind no, of left it, out let's let's conflict with that right off the bat there were there were black folks in the house and the senate that part's true but the notion that, reconstru- that uh, during Reconstruction, these carpetbaggers and scalawags uh, ran the South into the ground is just completely fallacious. Well, I know. Uh, indeed, <laughs> the, the, the um, uh, governments in the southern states during Reconstruction, almost without exception, were better than they were at any later point in the, in the 19th century. Uh, Mississippi, the state I lived in in particular, uh, had clearly the, the least corrupt government during Reconstruction and, of course, the most fair government in terms of allowing African Americans to vote and be on juries and, and participate as citizens. Yeah. And the notion that this is a bad period, the only thing bad about it is that it got overthrown. Yeah. Uh, and we've got to look at it as yeah. a, a great possibility for American democracy and something we still need to model uh, toward. Well, I didn't, I didn't intend for our discussion to turn into a, a civil war lesson, but it's illustrative of what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and Why not? Yeah, why not? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're speaking with James W. Lowen. The book is Teaching What Really Happened, How to Avoid the Tyranny of Textbooks and Get Students Excited About Doing History. And... Are you fearful as to how this period, the last, say, 10 years, is going to be represented in history books in, say, 10 years from now? Or oh, you... it's already being badly represented. You know? how, how, so yes, it, indeed I am. How is, how's it going so far? I mean, what are you seeing out there as far as, you know, how, how this, this war that we're still in still started? You know? Well, how... there's no notion, there, there's almost no notion anywhere in the textbooks of questioning the federal government. And, and this, too, bugs the heck out of me, because I have never met a parent, for example, who didn't question the heck out of either the George W. Bush administration or the Clinton administration. You know, each one, whether it's the one or the other, parents question at least one of those two uh, administrations of the government that, of course, ran things for eight years. 
So that being the case, I don't see why uh, textbooks have to assume that we always do things for the best possible motives. Now, the question comes up then, why did we get in? Why are we in Iraq? You know? Uh-huh. And that's not an obvious question to answer. And I think there's at least five competing alternative explanations. It's certainly clear that we are not in Iraq because Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. It didn't have any. And that was pretty clear at the time we said it did. And it's totally clear now. So that can't be why we're there. So then why are we there? Well, that would be an interesting conversation for students to have with the data. But instead, the textbooks just flatly tell us why the Bush administration says they went into it. That's the same thing. Now, I'm going to ask you, because I think this is important. Uh, It's sort of a pet peeve of mine. And that is, in high schools, and and, uh, K through 8, and in the high schools, we don't teach civics. And to me, civics and history are, are linked they're armed in arm when, when it comes to, you're talking about, you know, the facts and the dates and all of these other things. That's history. But how is it relevant, and why is it that it matters to us as American citizens? And civics, sure. it seems to be sort of the, the stepchild of, the hist- of history. Uh, it, it, right. history. It's not taught. Teaching uh, it, we used to have a semester on it, and what, it, what that mo- I, I Let me say a couple of complex things about it, Bill. That semester we used to be even more boring than history books. <laughs> and the reason is because, again, it, it, had, it was not taught from a standpoint of any kind of critical thinking. The, the notion was, well, it's a great country, and you should vote, and, and there's a separation of powers. There's the you know, executive branch and the judicial branch and the legislative branch. No notion that there might even be the corporate branch or you know, the, yeah. any other kind of branch, any kind of influence. Um, so what I think we need to do, I think if we taught history well, that is, if we taught it as competing interests, and if we taught the notion that citizenship requires you to play a role with these competing interests, then that would take care of civics. And let me just give you a really quick example of a, of a classroom that did that. Um, there was a sixth grade class in Illinois. They had a uh, teacher who just happened to mention in maybe September or October early in the year that the early presidents, almost all of them except the Adamses, were slave owners. And the sixth graders got outraged. No, they weren't, Miss Walker, because if they were, it would be in the book. Look, we have six pages on Jefferson. We have five pages on Washington. We have two pages on uh, uh, Jackson and so on. And doesn't say anything about them owning slaves. Yeah. Well, the teacher was quite intelligent. I would have just yelled at them and said, hush up and take notes. But she was intelligent. She said... Uh, well, maybe you're right. Let's, I'll tell you what, we'll assign two of you to each president. You guys go find out. And, of course, the next day they come back, and now they're outraged at the book because, of course, she's right. Every president before, uh, before Lincoln, except for the two Adamses, uh, almost everyone, was, in fact, a slave owner, a big slave owner. Um, so they, what to do about it? Well, they finally decided to do a civics-type thing. They wrote a class letter to the alleged author and to the publisher. Well, they never heard back from the alleged author. It doesn't surprise me. Uh, but they did hear back from the publisher with the following kind of letter. It went like this. Dear fifth, sixth grade class uh, of Ms. Walker, thank you very much for your uh, feedback about our product. We are always trying to improve our product, and it is from consumers like you that we are able to accomplish this. Well, you know, so far they could have been talking about a fishing rod. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, finally, they get to an actual paragraph of sense. It says, if you will look at pages 805 to 809 in our book, you will find a five-page treatment 
of the civil rights era. The students look at each other. The civil rights. What does this have? <laughs> well, it's black, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah. I submit that what they have learned from this is they've learned there's nobody at home intellectually at Venice Hall. And that's <laughs> yeah. a thing for them to learn. Well, well, on the other right. hand, they might have actually caused change, and they might have improved the books, and that would be a great civics outcome, too. Well, James Lowen is naming names here today, Prentice yeah. Hall. <laughs> By the way, we don't have time, but the, the whole the textbook is, uh, industry is such a scam. We, we don't have enough time to talk about all that. But, well, uh, yeah, as the subtitle of my book says, you've got to avoid the tyranny of textbooks, and yes. you've got to teach what really happened. Yeah, absolutely. You are absolutely right. Um, and boy, we just really just scratched the surface on all of this. Uh, James Lowen, do you have a, a website for yourself? Uh, is, uh, is it yes. S- the easiest way to find my website is to type the name of my bestseller, Lies My Teacher Told Me, right. into Google. Okay. Everybody right. knows Google. Yep. Right. My website comes up, and you can learn about my new book, Teaching What Really Happened. What I want you to do, you listeners, this is the first time I've ever said this about one of my books. I want you to actually go out and buy it. Then right. I want you to read it, but keep it nice, and yeah. then give it to the history teacher that your kids had. That's great you advice. Teach them any of this stuff. That's a ex- very good, very very good idea. Uh, the book is teaching what really happened: how to avoid the tyranny of textbooks and get students excited about doing history. James Lowen, thank you so much for being here on Weekly Signals. Really appreciate it's it. It's been a fun discussion. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.